0: All right, it's wonderful to be here with you. So we read through Jonah last week. Let's pick it up, just by way of review, let's pick it up at chapter 3, because I I hurried uh, at the end of class last week. So remember, God calls Jonah to go preach to the city of Nineveh. These would be Gentiles. He balks at that and tries to run away. He wants to go to Spain, Tarshish, as far as ways you can get in in the Mediterranean world. Uh, But God uh, sends a a whale, a great fish, to swallow Jonah. And at the end of chapter 2, Jonah is vomited up on the land. And now in chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh, proclaim to it the message, I give you. Now remember, remember I asked you last week, if you're a scorekeeper or a mathematician, you want to pay attention to how often God is doing something or saying something in Jonah. More on that in a moment. Verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word this time and he goes to Nineveh and Nineveh is very important and a visit requires three days. Verse 4, on the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed 40 more days. 40 is a huge number in the Bible. Just do your concordance study. You know, Jesus in the wilderness today, the gospel reading, 40 days and 40 nights without eating. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. You know, Moses, 40 days on the Mount of Sinai. The Ninevites believed God. Whoa, they believed. Who would have ever expected that? Gentiles would actually repent and believe. More on that in a moment. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. In the Bible, in in the Old Testament, when you wear sackcloth and ashes, that's a sign of repentance. Turning from your sin and turning to the Lord for His forgiveness. And they do that. When the news reaches the king of Nineveh, he rises from his throne, takes off his royal robes, covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits down in the dust. And then he issues a proclamation by the decree of the king and his nobles. Don't let any man, notice not just people, but beast, herd, or flock taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. I mean, this is is repentance, not only human beings, but we're going to show that everything we've got in the city, including the animals, are repentant. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. (laughs) Imagine that. Let everyone call urgently on God. That's important. Call on God urgently. Which reminds me of Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 6. Now is the day of salvation. In other words, don't put it off anymore. Now is the time. And this is why the king says, do it urgently don't put it off. Uh, Let them give up their evil ways. See, this is part of repentance. Turn away from your sins and then turn to Jesus for forgiveness. So turn from their evil ways and their violence because who knows, God may relent and with compassion turn from His fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. Now tie this in with what we just read. Tie this in with our Lenten catechism stuff that we're doing during Lent. What is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to His church on earth to do two things. To forgive the sins of what kind of sinners? The repentant sinners. Those are sinners who say, yeah, we've sinned and we want to be forgiven. So you forgive them. But the other part of the keys is but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent." The unrepentant would say, I haven't sinned, and because I haven't sinned, I certainly know I don't need him and his forgiveness. And so with that kind of a person, you say, all right, have it your way. That's the way it's going to be. Your sins are not forgiven. We bind those sins on your back. Good luck with that. Okay? And this is exactly what's happening here at Nineveh. He preaches to sinners, they repent, and God has compassion. Okay, This is very important. Now chapter 4. You'd think Jonah would be, woo-hoo, But instead, verse 1, Jonah is greatly displeased and he becomes angry. Why is he angry? Because God's so compassionate and gracious. <laughs> that just blows my mind. More on that in a moment. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In other words, I knew you'd have mercy on these Gentiles, but see, he's a Hebrew. He's bigoted, if you will. He discriminates. He doesn't want Gentiles to be forgiven by God. In other words, Jonah is like us Lutherans. I'll put it to you this way. Lutherans don't want other people to repent and believe. We just want to keep it in-house. Wrong, wrong. Verse 3, Now, O Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. I don't want to live with these Ninevites who are forgiven. They're not Hebrews. I don't want to be with them. Sound familiar? Yeah, it does. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonathan went out, sat down at a place east of the city, made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. What's the Lord do? Notice what you're keeping score. The Lord provided a vine, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. So he's happy about the vine that he's not going to die in the uh, scorching heat. But is he happy about the Ninevites repenting and God having mercy on them? No. But at dawn, the next day, what's God do? Again, keeping score, provides a worm which chews the vine so that it perishes or withers. And then the sun rises, and God provided a scorching east wind. In Nebraska or Kansas, it'd be be a southern wind, right? never stops. Every time Robin and I go to Wichita to visit Jake, the wind probably blows 80 miles an hour. It's hurricane-force winds in Wichita. And you ought to try and play golf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. Now, verse 9, God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. And now the Lord says in verse 10, You've been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it and you didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well, should I not be concerned about that great city? And that's how it ends with that rhetorical question. And you all know the answer. The answer is what? Yes. Now look at the sheet that I've given you. You've got the, the picture of the great fish or the whale spitting Jonah up onto the shore. Now take your Bibles and go to Matthew 12. While you're looking up Matthew 12, I've told you this story before, but it bears repeating. When I was a young boy and we lived in a single wide trailer chapel in Bridgeport, Nebraska, and my dad worked for Kansas-Nebraska National Gas Company, he was a serviceman. And I'll never forget Grandma and Grandpa Kuhlman coming to visit us. And Grandpa was really upset about something and he and Dad were having a discussion about it. And it was what was happening at the seminary in St. Louis, our Missouri Senate Seminary in St. Louis. And grandpa who probably who did not have a high school education he didn't have a high school diploma I, by the way i'm the first coolman to go to college in our family okay that tells you something about our history okay but grandpa knew his bible and when he read the story of jonah he believed it to be historically true and factual and these professors at st louis at our seminary at the time this is in the 60s and 70s They were teaching that these Old Testament stories that you read about really aren't true. They're mythical. So, are Adam and Eve truly historical figures? Our seminary professors said, no, of course not. We know that that's not true. Did God create the world in six days? They all, no, of course not. We all know that the the world took billions and billions of years for the world to evolve from nothing, from a big bang. Uh, Was Jonah actually physically swallowed by a whale and then physically spit up on the shore? They all said, of course not. And my grandfather was very upset about this because he knew his Bible and he knew that these things are historically true. Now, my grandpa didn't make this argument, but I will, piggybacking on my grandfather. Thanks be to God for him. By the way, side note, grandparents, make sure you teach your children these stories and you teach them they're historically true. And you teach them by your example that you trust what God says in His Word. They will learn this. I did from my grandfather and my parents as well. But teach them. You know by having conversations in their presence about these things so piggybacking on my grandfather thanks be to god we're in matthew 12. look at verses 39 to 42. let's even start at verse 38 matthew 12 starting at verse 38 some of the pharisees and teachers of the law said to jesus teacher we want to see a miraculous sign from you he answered a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Does Jesus consider this to be historically true? He does. If you've got a problem with what we just read about in Jonah, you've got a problem with the Lord Jesus Himself who knows it's true. Now, more on that. Do you have any questions about what I'm doing here right now at the moment? Jesus, who is God in the flesh, considers this to be historically accurate and true. You understand what I'm doing here, don't you? Because the bigwigs, the scholars will say this is not historically true, but the Lord, God in the flesh, says, yeah, it did happen. And let's keep going. Yes, please. Exactly. God's the one who made it happen. Jesus knows this. He, he did it. <laughs> right. Good point. Let's keep going. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh, remember they repented and they believed. The men of, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment. That's the last day judgment with this generation. What generation? The one that Jesus is speaking to right there who want a miraculous sign. Prove who you are by giving us a miraculous sign. And Jesus says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. But let's let's finish this. Again, verse 41 the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment, the last day judgment, with this generation, you Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they will condemn you. Why? Because they, the Ninevites, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Who's the one greater than Jonah? Jesus is. The Ninevites repented, they won't. They stand in the presence of God in the flesh and they will not be repented and faith. And so, on the last day, the people of Nineveh will be the ones to judge this generation that rejected Jesus. Now, my main point was Jesus considers this to be historically true. You got that? That's just incontrovertible. Any questions? I look again at the sheet, letter B, under number 2, 2B. Jesus, speaking of what we read here in Jonah, does not speak of it as a parable, He doesn't speak about it as a legend, or an allegory, or a myth, like the seminary professors at St. Louis did in the 1970s. Now, if you don't know that history, just let me review that with you real quickly. In the the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was having an identity crisis. We wanted to be a big wig, a big player in the world and in the United States and to be a big player in the United States, you have to adopt all the things that the other churches were adopting. And one of the things that the other churches adopted in America, not even not just in the 50s and 60s, but even before that was is when you read the Bible, you have to read it critically, which means you stand above the scriptures and you judge, you you critique it. But see, the opposite should be this. The scriptures stand above us and they critique us. The Bible critiques us. You don't critique the Bible. But that's the view they took. So men are in charge. We call the shots. Sounds like Genesis 3, right? You'll say what's good. You'll say what's evil. And so these professors did the Genesis 3 thing. Well, we can't trust the word of God on these historically true true things. And so what happened is is you had had some laymen and some pastors from the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate who got wind of what was being taught at the seminary in St. Louis, and they were whistleblowers. And thanks be to God, God used a lot of faithful lay people in the Missouri Senate to say, these these professors at St. Louis are not faithful, and they need to be be called to repentance. Now, they would not be called to repentance, especially the president of the seminary. His name is John Teachin. John Teachin, false teacher, heretic. He was was the leader of all of this because he was the guy who would hire these professors. He was always in charge of hiring these men. The president of the university is always the one in charge of hiring. You know that, don't you? Like the superintendent at a school. Okay? Okay. You understand the point? So John Teachin would not be repented and neither would his, his men that he hired. So what happened is the Missouri Senate said, okay, you guys are false teachers and you need to be removed. Now, before they could be removed, here's what they did. is They called the media in St. Louis, they called the TV station, and they, had, they were way ahead of their time. They used the media at their time to come and watch them walk out. So they, they got vestments on, they t- took the processional cross, and they walked out of the seminary, and they put white crosses in the quad where the, the, the lawn was, as if it was dying. The seminary is now dead. And they walked out. And then they formed their own seminary, which they called in exile. Seminary in Exile. And the shorthand term for that was Seminex, Seminary in Exile. Seminex. Got it? So they formed, the, formed their own seminary. This was a huge crisis in the Missouri Senate. So these men would not be repented. So they were removed. Then all of a sudden, they, they're starting to send graduates from their Seminex seminary, to congregations in the Missouri Senate And district presidents had to do something about this. I mean, are you going to allow a pastor in your congregation that denies these things? And most, uh, most uh, district presidents said no, but some did say yes. And so now the synodical president had to get involved. J. A. O. Preuss. And J. A. O. Preuss had to get involved. and he, What he did then is he had to remove district presidents. All right, and as a result of this, roughly about 100 to 200,000 members from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod left and took numerous congregations with them with pastors, and they formed a separate church body in the 1970s, mid-1970s, called this is the acronym, the AELC, the Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches, the AELC. Now, I wasn't prepared to talk about all of this today, but I'm going to run with it because I think it's helpful for you. I hope. Do you want to hear more? If you don't want to hear more, I'll stop and we'll go back to Jonah. I have a question. question, yes. So, how did that seminary ever get approved in the first place by the Missouri Senate? It was not. So it was they, not approved. So then how could they call candidates and because they had district presidents and congregations that were sympathetic to them. Good question. And that's why then you had the the synodical president had to get involved and then had to start removing district presidents and congregations. And that's when they said, we're not going to be repentant at all. We just leave. We'll just walk out. We leave. Okay. So this church body was formed in the mid-1970s. Another question, please. Is is that what is now the ELCA? That's where I'm headed, so hang on. So at this time you have you have the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, the LCMS, the Breakoff Group, the AELC, and then there are other two major, major church bodies in the United States that are Lutheran, the American Lutheran Church and the Lutheran Church in America. So the church in Ashland was ALC, American Lutheran Church. They still go by that name. I mean, you old-timers, that's how you know the Lutheran Church in Ashland, as the American Lutheran Church. So you have three major Lutheran Church bodies. This is a break-off of the Missouri Senate. And then in 19... Don't quote me on this. I think it's 1988. Double-check me. But these three Church bodies, the ALC, the LCA, and the AELC, all form the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is now the Ashland Church is that. Um, What's the church called on Highway 50 going south to Syracuse? North Branch Branch is that, Christ on the way to Plattsmouth is that. Okay, So that's how the ELCA got formed. Now I want to say one more thing about this, and if you have some more questions I'd be happy to entertain those. But the Evangelicalism Church in America went off the rails when it was formed. I mean seriously, went off the rails theologically. And here's my contention they went off the rails because of these former Missouri Synod Lutheran pastors and theologians that joined it in 1988. So I would contend one of, one of the main reasons why the ELCA now is where it's at today. For example, where it just recently consecrated its first trans bishop in California. Okay? And you know all the other stuff that they adopt. Plus, they don't, they don't believe that these stories we're reading in the Old Testament are historically true. If you, if you would go to a seminary in the ELCA and you'd ask the professors, is Jonah historically true? The answer would be no, if they were honest. Adam and Eve, true historical beings, no, if they're honest. okay January 1st, 1988. 1988, thank you. Thanks for double-checking that, because my memory with my Alzheimer's kind of doesn't work. But I, again, my main contention is is one of the reasons why this church body has completely gone off the rails. And in my they're, they're, one, has, one has to even ask, are they even Christian anymore? Because they, they, generally speaking, let's pretend that we're a congregation in the ELCA right now. We could, and they would allow it, we could, in our divine service, we could pray to God as mother, and we could, we, we could deny confessing God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then can confess God differently as mother, daughter, fill in the blank. And I'm not joking here. Not joking. Their new hymnal is language inclusive, which eliminates Father and Son in all of its language, in the Bible and in the hymnal. Now, I'm, when I said, I have to, I have to, hold on just a second, Judy. So, When I say you have to wonder if you can even call them Christian anymore as a church body, now don't misunderstand, I'm not saying if you're a member of the ELCA you're automatically not a Christian. There are Christians in the ELCA, there are. okay. But generally speaking, as a church body as a whole, we are going to have to either blank or get off the pot on this because when you deny God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you've just just left Christianity. You have. You simply have, because you only have access to God by his what? His name. You change his name. You don't have access to him anymore. Let me illustrate this. So let's pretend you don't know who I am, and you're on the side of the road on a wreck, and I drive by, and you're going, hey, sir, sir, can you help me? But we don't know each other, and you look weird and scary, so I keep driving. <laughs> However, now let's, let's back the bus up, but let's pretend that before you're a wreck, we get to know each other. Hello. Listen carefully. Hello. My name is, did you hear that? My name is Pastor Kuhlman. So what did I just give you, Jen? My what? My name. So by giving Jen my name, now she has access to me. She can call upon me by my name and I will respond. So back to the example. She's in the ditch in a wreck. She needs help. I drive by and she says, Pastor Kuhlman, can you help me? She addresses me by my name. She has access to me by my and I come to her and I help her call 911, et cetera. But when you change God's name, you don't have access to Him. Ju- Judy. Well, I think, I think, generally speaking, that's true. So, for example, to piggyback on your point, a lot of ELCA Lutherans who are not in favor of the trans stuff and the homosexual stuff, they, they don't become Missouri Synod Lutherans, generally speaking. They simply do not because they do not like us at all. And they do not, one of the reasons they don't like us is because we're a bunch of SOBs sometimes. South really, Omaha seriously. Boys? What? South <laughs> yeah, South Omaha boys. I'm not going to fill in my blanks. Well, we, we in the Missouri Senate, to a certain extent, we need to repent of how we've treated people and how we have been arrogant and been like SOBs to other Christians, and that's put them off. It certainly has. That's one reason why they don't even consider joining a Missouri Senate congregation, because we have been not very nice to them sometimes, and we need to repent of that. But there's another issue, and it's, theologically speaking, we don't ordain women. But see, they've had this now for generation now, and they're not going to go back on it. They're simply, they're not going to go back on that. Secondly, secondly, they have, they've gone into fellowship with church bodies that don't believe in justification by faith alone. You know, that don't believe that in the Lord's Supper you actually get the body and blood of Jesus. Do you realize that? So the ELCA shares pulpits, pulpits and altars with the United Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, the United Church of Christ, the uh, I think it's the Moravians, etc., cetera, et cetera, the Episcopalians, et cetera. But all these church bodies that I just listed officially deny that when you come to communion, you receive the body and blood of Christ with the bread and wine for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, you may have Methodists that actually believe what the scriptures teach. I'm simply talking about what their official church body teaches. So on the one hand, this church body says, body and blood, forgiveness of sins with the bread and wine. And yet, they'll say, there's another truth. We can also believe what they teach, which is no body, no blood, no forgiveness. You can't do that. Those are contrary confessions. But that's what they've adopted. And that's why they won't join a Missouri Ascended Congregation, because we say, there's, there's, you can't do that. It's what Scripture says. Now, I'm not sure if this has been helpful for you at all, but that was just a fly-by. Uh, Connie? Do they even have communion then? Yeah, they have communion. That's right. well, why would they if they don't believe it? Well, because they're, they, they have a big concern. Their big concern is... Now, this is going to blow your mind. Really, this is going to blow your mind. The big wigs in all of these churches just list them and we can can add more. I'm talking about the big wigs. Here's what they teach in their seminaries. Get ready for this. Hang on to your hats and fasten your seatbelts. God is not God yet. God is becoming God. He's not God right now. He's becoming God. He will only be God in the end, at the end of time. Question? The LCMS believes that the Bible is the Word of God, and it's their job to preach all of the Word of God. The ELCA believes that the Bible contains the Word of God, and it's their job to determine what parts are actually the Word of God. Did I spell this correctly? Well, yeah, that's 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 certainly a difference. We believe that everything you read in the Scriptures is the word, very Word of God, and they'll these these people will say, "Well, parts are, parts are." Well, we, how do you decide that? Well, then it's all subjective. But here's here's another another easy way to tell the difference between us and all these other church bodies. When a church wants to be relevant, then you you have to abandon a lot of the things that the scriptures teach. When you want to be relevant, and I'll give you a concrete example. The Bible teaches that there's only one way for salvation. That's through Jesus Christ. Through Him alone is salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But if you want to be relevant, you have to deny that. And that's exactly what's happened. So, you and your experience in the Episcopalian Church with one of the former bishops, she has been on record saying that Jesus is not the only way for salvation. So, to be relevant, they'll deny that scriptural teaching. Yes? Now, I grew up as Methodist. Yeah. became Lutheran when we got married 55 years ago. Right. That's because it's really gone off the rails here recently, within the last 30, 40 years. So if I may, the bigwigs teach that God's not God yet. Hang on, Marvin, I'll get to you. Keep keep your hand up so I remember. God's not God yet. So why do they have communion? Why do they have communion? One of the biggest reasons why they have communion, and it's open communion, which means anybody can commune, including people who aren't even believers and who are unbaptized. It's full-blown open communion. No joke. Test me on it. Test me on it. Don't actually follow through with it, but test me and go to a congregation, even go to town, and test me on it and say, I want to take communion. They'll let you take communion. But they'd say. But I'm, I'm not even baptized, not even a believer. Now, they might draw the line here in Murdoch, but generally speaking, like in Omaha, Lincoln, the big cities, they won't draw the line. So it's open communion. Why is it open communion? Because... Communion now has become this. You don't go to communion to receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but you go to communion as a symbol. So you allow everybody to commune. And so when you allow everybody to commune, you are symbolizing what will be in the end. God will finally be God in the end, and everybody will be one in the end. Let's say this again. In the end, God will be God, and all will be one. So whether you're a Hindu, Sikh, Jew, Muslim, doesn't matter, atheist, American atheist, you're all gonna be there in God's presence, heaven, nirvana, whatever you call it. But God will be God and all will be one with God. So nobody goes to hell, nobody. There's no such thing as hell, got it? And so why do they have communion? Here's the answer, Connie. You, with unbelievers, unbaptized, doesn't matter who you are. You, you symbolize what it will be like in the end. I told you that was going to blow your mind. They, well, what, say it again. I'm not sure if I understand. Oh yeah. Well, they're going to all be one. It's just a given. It's just a given. doesn't matter when you lived. So again, communion is just a symbol of what it will be like in the end. That's all. Now, Marvin, you had a question. First Lutheran First Lutheran in Omaha? That, I don't know. I don't know that history. Okay, I don't know that history. But okay, was there another question or hand? Mike, please. Okay, so I'm gonna piggyback on your point. This has been documented. What you just said has been documented by Paul Kengor. And I think the name of the book is Marx and Satan. Double check me on the title, Robin's good at checking. So if you're double checking, your point said that they've infiltrated the churches, the Marxists. That is exactly true, brothers and sisters. And Paul Kengor has documented it. And it started big time where, Judy? Did, and you didn't even know this growing up, in the Methodist Church. One of the biggest per, persons in the United States as a Marxist was working in the United Methodist Church to turn it, and turn it completely against family, God, everything. This is, this is a fact, brothers and sisters. I guess so. Now, having said all of this, I want, I want to warn all of us, including myself, I'm not excluding me when I say this. That we have to be careful. Now, I gave you some history here, but you remember you remember in the, in the New Testament, there was this Tower of Siloam that fell on people and it killed people. Remember this account in the New Testament? And remember what Jesus says? Well, they asked, him, well, they asked Jesus, why did this happen? And then Jesus turns it on them and says, unless you repent, you too will perish. And that's where I want to take us. So we, I include myself as, we, as I give you this whole history lesson here. We can't be gloating and be arrogant and say, well, yeah, not me. I'd never do that. Well, you bet we'd all better repent or we too will perish. We too, we too can fall away. So I want to, you understand that? See what I'm trying to do here? So if somebody leaves here today and says, oh, this pastor here at Trinity, he thinks he's such a hot commodity and he doesn't need, no, I need to repent. We all need to repent, or we'll perish too. We can fall away as well. So we have to be vigilant. And when God calls us to repentance, we need to repent. So uh, I'm going to fill you in on another. So, did you graduate from Mequon? Ann Arbor. But Ann Arbor, we have have two Concordia universities. Uh, We have many Concordia universities, but one in particular, Concordia University at Ann Arbor, Michigan and they're now united together with Concordia University in Mequon, Wisconsin. They're in the process of calling a new president. Well, all of a sudden, well, let me back this up a little bit, because my my head is spinning. (laughs) Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that the largest Protestant church body in the United States, what is the largest Protestant church body in the United States? Do you know? The Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention recently adopted critical race theory. Officially. I'm going to repeat that. The Southern Baptist Convention just a few years ago officially adopted critical race theory. Now this is going to cause a split in the Southern Baptist Convention. It is. It's going to cause a split. Because, well, well, I got to, let me finish my thought. So... Concordia, Ann Arbor, and Concordia, Mequon are in the process of calling a new president. And in the process of calling the new president, it was discovered, or the, the, the whistleblower, a professor at Mequon, a pastor slash professor, blew the lid, was a whistleblower, on what was happening in this call process. The, the, board, the board who is doing the call, they want someone who will promote critical race theory. Now, it wasn't said explicitly like that. Instead, it was implicit that the person we're looking for must have experience in, I quote, must have experience in these three things. And the acronym is Ironic. Diversity, Inclusion, and what's the E? Equity. I find this ironic. Well, this, brothers and sisters, is the Trojan horse. And so, when I said earlier, when we do the history and critique other church bodies, we had better take care of our own house. So we now have a crisis in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate. What will... What will the, the Wisconsin it be? Wisconsin South or North District? What's one in? I don't even know. Because the district president of the Wisconsin, there's two, Wisconsin split into two, a Wisconsin North District and a Wisconsin South. And I'm not sure if one's in South. We'll just say South for the sake of discussion. What will the district president do? Because he has ecclesiastical supervision over that university. We're at a crisis point. Will we be like the church bodies I just mentioned? Up the, uh, the professor who was the whistleblower was, <laughs> what do you think? He was, he was removed. He was removed. And, and it's not because he didn't tell, here's, here's the point, watch how this works folks, I know this firsthand. He wasn't removed because he told a lie. <laughs> he was not removed because he lied, he told the truth. Why was he removed? I'll tell you why he was removed. Because he didn't follow the, the process. Well, he would argue, he would argue if the process would have been allowed to happen, well, in any event. But I, I hope you understand my point. We we need to repent as well, or we too will perish. We will be just like all these other church bodies if we don't repent and get our house in order. (laughs) Well, we didn't get to Jonah. Do we have a few minutes? So back to the sheet. Look at, so let her be there. So Jesus doesn't speak of Jonah as a myth. He regards it as historical, just like he spoke of Adam and Eve in Mark 10 as historical. Solomon as historical in Matthew 12. Abraham in John 8. Noah and the flood in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. Lot, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife turned into salt, Luke 17. I mean, that's Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. All the bigwigs would say that can't happen. It simply can't be true. But Jesus considers it to be true. He considers the prophet Daniel to be historical in Matthew 24. Moses, the queen of Sheba, Elijah, Elisha and Elisha's miracles? Because he's the Lord, and this is piggybacking on what you said, Mike, he is the Lord who directed all of what we read in the book of Jonah to take place. C. Consider as well, brothers and sisters, what happens to Jonah, as we read in Matthew 12, what happens to Jonah is a prophecy of what will happen to Jesus. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights... Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what happened to Jonah is a prophecy of what will happen here. He will die and he will be buried in the earth and will be there for three days. And then on the third day, be spit out alive. So think of of the grave and our Lord Jesus Christ being buried. Think of, the, think of Jesus being swallowed up by death. He's in the belly of death, but Jesus gives death's stomach a bellyache and death has to vomit him out. <laughs> That's the resurrection. So we'll, we'll quit there because it's time. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in